This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. I've got uh, something I've got my eyes set on. It's just almost out. I've, I've been able to get a sneak peek in advance of it, but I can't wait to have my own copy in my hand. And that is a brand new volume of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. This is a commentary series that comes from Baker Academic Press. Not typically the one you would think of as doing a whole lot of Catholic content, but this series is fantastic. So they've got 17 volumes in the New Testament. The series editors of that are Peter Williamson from Sacred Heart Major Seminary and, and Dr. Mary Healy from the same. Uh, and it's been a while. We've just kind of been on pins and needles, but the Old Testament is now coming out. And today we have the great pleasure of talking with one of the series editors for that Old Testament portion of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, Dr. Mark Gieschek. Uh, he received his PhD from the Catholic University of America. He's a professor of sacred scripture at the Augustan Institute just outside Denver, Colorado, and is the author of Bible Translation and the Making of the ESV Catholic Edition. We've had him on the show to talk about that before. You can find it over the archives outside the walls.com. He's also the author of Light on the Dark Passages of Scripture from OSV and has contributed to the Augustan Institute's Bible in a Year and the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. Dr. Gieschek, thank you so much for being with us today. It's really great to be with you, TL, and thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to start with this question. Um, of course, I kind of geek out about Bible commentaries. I've got a, a whole plethora of different series in my verbum library uh, that when I study scripture, I typically have three or four up. Of course, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture is the one I have prioritized above the others because I appreciate the way that it works. The different Bible commentaries operate in different ways. Uh, and so I'm used to that process, but I didn't really spend a lot of time in biblical commentaries before I went to graduate school. And so I, I guess my first question is, what is the benefit for the average person going to uh, to mass on a Sunday to invest in and begin using a biblical commentary as part of their devotional life? Yeah, that's a really great question. And uh, I think it makes me reflect on an even broader question, which has to do with study, right? And study of the word of God and why we study. And one of the things that I feel like I've perceived in the Jewish tradition and in the Protestant tradition is a strong tradition of study, right? So if you go to a, a typical Baptist church on Wednesday night, there's a Bible study going on. Mm -hmm. And if you go hang out with some real serious Orthodox Jews, they're studying the Torah. And I think for Catholics, uh, maybe for too long, we have not incorporated study into our practice of the faith as completely as we could. And... Um, when we think about it, you know, what, what are we trying to do when we're learning, when we're studying, right? We're trying to understand something more completely. And what better, you know, subject to study than the word of God himself? And so I think it's this ideal of, right, trying, trying to combine the spiritual life with the intellectual life in order to draw closer to God, right? We're complete beings, right? We're body and soul. We have an intellect. And if we apply all the parts of ourselves uh, to the relationship that we have with the Lord, 
it can be deeply enriching. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think Bible reading and Bible study, which have been really encouraged by the church since the Second Vatican Council, are so vital to growth in the Christian life. Um, it's not just about growing in knowledge and in trivia, right? And right. an ability to sort of cite obscure verses. It's really about using your mind to draw closer to the Lord. So this, I think, is sort of the foundation stone for why using a resource like a commentary is a really helpful addition to our practice of Bible reading. So if we read the Bible, a lot of times there's some difficult stuff in there, right? Complicated vocabulary, historical background that's kind of hard to figure out just from the text itself. Um, there might be some literary things that we need to think about, particularly when it gets into the, say, the poetic books and the prophetic books. And um, I think a lot of times we read the Bible without understanding what we're reading very well. And well, I think that that could be a kind of like good first step. You know, we, we have to try to familiarize ourselves with the unfamiliar. Um, I think if we want to go a little bit deeper, we want to search for resources that can help us. So this could be as simple as going to a Bible study, taking a class, you know, picking up a study Bible, but a commentary really takes you like one step deeper into the text where you're not just sort of skating over the top anymore. You're not reading without understanding. You're really getting somebody who's invested a lot of time and trying to learn more deeply about that particular text, its background, what it means, and is really giving you a lot of the tools that you need to be able to understand, to read the text with understanding. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of moving from like first reading to second reading, right? You're, you're moving from reading with some clarity, but not a lot, to reading with a lot more clarity. I think of... Um there, there's some wonderful series by the Augustine Institute, part of the form.org uh, platform called the Lexio series. And yeah. I did some men's Bible studies going with, uh, with other people from my parish. We went through the one on the Eucharist. We went through the one on prayer. And in each session, as we went through these topical scriptural studies, there was always some moment of, oh my gosh, I never even considered that that was a possibility. And now this person who's up front has just now opened my mind to this connection that I never saw. And, and in my mind, there's such benefit to having those kind of organized studies. And I'm so grateful that, that people like Augustine Institute and others are putting these kinds of things together. But to me, a biblical commentary is one more step in because it's less of a, a guided meditation on, okay, we're going to go from step one to step two to step three and into a choose your own adventure of now that I'm going to read this specific passage of scripture, I want to see what do the scholars say about this? How does this connect to the catechism? How does this connect to other verses in the scripture? And now I'm no longer on this a really strict path set by someone else, I get to go exploring. And to me, that's that's such a, a, a joyful way to approach scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in many ways it's more complete. Sometimes I feel like the way we use scripture is is kind of like um, you know, like swatches of cloth, maybe at the fabric store or something like that, or at the carpet store where you get like a little sample that's only maybe the size of a postage yeah. stamp. Like, oh, that's kind of nice, you know, and then you kind of move on to the next one, you kind of look through them. And I feel like this is often the case with scripture where we have these verses floating out there that everybody kind of knows or quotes and references. Maybe they show up in greeting cards or, you know, maybe even cross-stitched on a pillow at your grandmother's house, you know. Um, 
But that's not really a great way to appreciate literature, mm-hmm. right? You would, I mean, while we quote Shakespeare, it's much better if you, you know, go and watch a play unfold or you read a play from cover to cover. And I think it's the same way with scripture that those little swatches, those little verses that we quote are, are a helpful doorway. But, but really, when you walk through that doorway, you're entering this amazing ancient library of powerful texts. And as you come to more deeply encounter them by reading them, start to finish, you know, say, for example, taking off, taking uh, on a, a big book like Isaiah, you know, and reading it from the beginning to the end, all 66 chapters, that's a real challenge, mm-hmm. right? For any reader and having someone to guide you through that process by uh, maybe introducing the book at the beginning of a commentary and then walking with you through every single passage, it really gives you a much more satisfying reading than just reading a little chunk here or there. Yeah. And it helps you understand those little, you know, postage stamps or those swatches that you've come across before, because now you get to see them in context and you start to understand how they're part of a much larger literary masterpiece and how God is using the message of that entire book to communicate himself to us. Now that we've got people excited about the idea of a biblical commentary, let's step back a little bit because they are uh, tools first and foremost, and a tool is meant for a specific job. And out there in the world, you can find dozens upon dozens of different commentary series. You've got the single volumes with, that have the whole Bible in one volume. You've got uh, ones that are more academically focused that are dealing with historical critical or textual criticism. As a person looking to get invested and involved using biblical commentaries, it can be a little daunting to figure out how do I pick one that's actually going to help me in my study so I'm not picking up a tool that's meant for some task that I'm not really interested even in doing. So let's talk about what are the different kinds, just in a survey, the different kinds of biblical commentaries and where does Catholic commentary on sacred scripture fall within that spectrum? Yeah, that's that's a great way to think about it. You might think about it as on a continuum from small to big, right? Or on, on a continuum from simple to complex, right? So at the at the smallest and simplest level, you might have something like a study Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Or or a one volume commentary would be like the next level, which has a, a very short uh, commentary on every book of the Bible. Um, some of these can be really helpful and enriching at, at learning about the biblical literature. Um, but then sort of once we get beyond that into multi-volume series, the landscape can become kind of um, complicated to understand. And I think yeah. the, the easiest way to explain it is with a quote from the great biblical scholar, Luis Alonso Schokel, who taught at the Pontifical Biblical Institute for many years. He used to say, biblical scholarship is about biblical scholars, not about the Bible. And this is where, you know, if you're reading the most complicated commentaries, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one on Leviticus that's three volumes, and each volume is about 1,500 pages, yeah. right? So you're looking at, you know, almost 5,000 pages or so on uh, one book. Well, this is not for your average reader, right? This, this is really a very highly technical kind of exercise that's a scholar writing for other scholars about very technical matters. And it's important stuff, right? There's a lot of really good things in a commentary like that. But it's so big that most of us just wouldn't be able to digest it. Um, it's not the sort of book you're going to read before you go to bed at night, right? Or that you're going to read in your prayer chair in the morning, right? Um, and so there are commentaries like the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture that are a little bit simpler than that, 
right? They're not really written primarily for a scholarly audience, but primarily for an audience of priests and catechists and Bible study leaders, <coughs> other people who are going to be teaching the Bible, reading the Bible, who want to understand it better, but don't necessarily have knowledge of the original languages or advanced degrees or this kind of thing. Um, and uh, I really think that this commentary series is very helpful in that way, kind of bridging the gap from, say, the world of, say, study Bibles and Bible studies to the world of scholarship. It's really kind of a, a, a commentary that kind of um, sits in the middle of that continuum um, and is able to bring you deeper into the text without overwhelming you with lots of scholarly minutiae and trivia that m might not really interest you. So. Mm -hmm. I like to think of the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture as being about the Bible, not about biblical scholarship, right? Yeah. Even though it's mainly written by biblical scholars and it's going to refer to biblical scholarship sometimes, um, it's not really about sort of breaking new cutting edge ground in complicated theories, uh, but rather it's about explaining the biblical text from the vantage point of Catholic faith. Yeah. I tend to, when I am describing the, the series to others, I tend to say that this is uh, a, a devotional biblical commentary because you can enrich your own spiritual life with it. It is a catechetical commentary because if you are involved in the process of catechetics at all, it ties everything back to the catechism and helps you make connections that you otherwise wouldn't be able to make. I think it's the only commentary I've ever seen that connects back to the catechism. Uh, and then it's also a homiletic commentary because it gives uh, spiritual insight to allow pastors to incorporate it more fully into their preaching. So we have the whole New Testament's done. Uh, it's out, it's published. You can pick it up uh, on Baker Academics website. You can get it in your verbum library. You can get it wherever, wherever you're buying your books. Now we're getting into the Old Testament and you're the series editor for the Old Testament. We also have you're the author of the first volume in the Old Testament, The Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, now, I have to admit, uh, I come from a Protestant upbringing, and this is one of those books that I have gotten the little swaths of, right? I've pulled out the samples, I've heard it in the readings, and I've kind of thought of it, uh, and you'll probably laugh at me for this, I've, I've kind of thought of it as like Proverbs 2.0, right? The sequel. <laughs> and so... I, as I've begun reading your commentary on this, I see that that's not the case. So situate this book for us, uh, who maybe have only gotten the the little fabric swaths. Yeah. What is the wisdom of Solomon? Yeah. Okay. So I want to say a little bit more about the series uh, before yeah. I begin here. So, so there are th three editors, right? Me, Peter Williamson, and Mary Healy, and we're hoping to do. Um, at least right now, 16 volumes on the Old Testament. We have 17 on the new. We're hoping to do 16 on the old. And who knows, maybe we'll end up doing more. And this year is my book, Wisdom of Solomon, but then also um, the commentary on Ezekiel by Daniel Keating. So it's really exciting to, to be part of this. And we're you know hoping to keep pumping them out uh, over the next few years. So say a prayer that uh, we're able to stay on, on schedule and, and get them coming out. And um, I think, you know, when we... When, when it came up, like, okay, what volume do you want to write? We had a conversation about this, you know? And, uh, you know, Mary picked the book of Genesis. Makes sense. First book of the Bible. It's a really big book, really important book. Peter picked Isaiah, right? Really big book, really important book. 
uh, you know, it's central to, you know, a Christian reading of the Old Testament. But I have always had a kind of fondness in my heart for the underdog, if you will, right? For the unsung hero, uh, for those parts of scripture that are often overlooked or misunderstood, um, that just kind of get short shrift. So for example, I wrote my dissertation on the Song of Songs, which is such a weird book, right? And one that right. often doesn't get studied or, or written about. And um, what really compelled me to choose the Wisdom of Solomon to write about is that we really haven't seen an English language commentary, like a full length, you know, book length commentary on Wisdom of Solomon since the 1970s. Hmm. And I felt like it was one of those areas of scripture where, you know, as a Catholic, I believe it's the word of God. Um, but it's one of those books that's that's been overlooked by two very important groups. Okay, so one is obviously it's been overlooked by Protestant scholarship because it's not in the Protestant canon. So you know there are a handful of Protestant scholars that write about it, but not very much, and it doesn't find its way into Protestant biblical commentary series. But on the other hand, the world of scholarship, at least let's say for the past oh I don't know hundred years or so, has really preferred if you will, original Hebrew thought over against Greek thought. And this is where the the wisdom of Solomon kind of got caught in the crossfire, I think quite unfairly. So the wisdom of Solomon is written in classical Greek and it's written during the Hellenistic period. And so it has some Greek philosophical ideas in it, some Stoic ideas and some interaction with maybe Epicureanism and some other things. And uh, Latin and Greek, you know, classical studies was all the rage in the 1800s. And the kind of culture of biblical scholarship was a kind of counterculture against the prevailing winds of classical studies, right? Where Old Testament scholars wanted to point out the unique features of the Hebrew insight or the Hebrew worldview, uh, the Hebrew philosophy. And so it was by finding the oldest books and the sort of most Hebraic of books in Hebrew that one could kind of like push that angle um, against the kind of prevailing ideals of classical studies. And Wisdom of Solomon was seen as kind of late and derivative and too Greek for our interests, right? Um, And it's not the New Testament, right? So it didn't have the, the kind of allure of New Testament scholarship. And it's not the sort of old book of the Old Testament. It's a kind of newish book of the Old Testament. And so I feel like it it kind of got left in the dust, right? And people wrote a lot about earlier books and wrote a lot about the New Testament. But the Wisdom of Solomon, I think, is really unique because it functions as a kind of adapter, if you will, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Hebrew worldview and the Greek worldview. In this book, you're going to find Hebrew ideas communicated in a Greek rhetorical and philosophical way. And in this way, I found it uniquely compelling, right? As offering a kind of synthesis of how to think about the Bible as a whole. This is one of our great challenges, I think, as Christians is it's so easy for us to become kind of practical Marcionites, right? Where you kind of carry around your New Testament in your pocket, or at least people used to before they had smartphones, right? And you might, you know, have your, maybe some Psalms and maybe the Proverbs at the back, um, we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, which of course is wonderful, but then maybe spend very little time in the old. And, and when you do read it, it's kind of incomprehensible. And I feel like the Book of Wisdom presents a kind of unique opportunity to unite the two Testaments 
and read them together and really try to think think with both the old old testament and new testament in mind and start to see i mean it's it you know we're getting a kind of like um snapshot at a particular moment in the development of biblical thought in the book of wisdom where the older ideas about um say for example in earlier texts in the hebrew bible it's not totally clear that there's an afterlife right mm-hmm. uh but once you get to the book of wisdom Right, the souls of the just are in the hand of God, right? And then, of course, that is going to develop even further in the New Testament when we start to see Jesus teaching us about eternal life. And it's like we're getting this 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 moment right before the New Testament arrives of the Lord revealing some of these truths, some of these things that have been kind of hidden in the earlier texts of the Old Testament and that will be bought, brought to full fruition in the New Testament. But we're seeing them at this moment where that transition is taking place. Mm-hmm. In your one of the first things that I noticed in the introduction to this book is that this book is pseudepigraphal. It's it it claims to be by Solomon, but modern scholarship says that's not the case. I uh, I know more than a handful of people who, when they hear this kind of thing, they they get very maybe um, wary of biblical scholarship as whole because they feel like someone's trying to change something that's just written clear as day in scripture and that they're trying to, uh, to, to modify it, to make it more palatable. And so I see kind of a distrust of scholarship with these kinds of claims. Um, we see that not only with this one, but also with, um, the, the Pentateuch being, uh, the, the, the common idea that it was written by Moses uh, with some of the letters of Paul, where there's uh, some claim that, that not all of the letters of Paul were specifically Paul, or even with the book of Isaiah, where there's this, uh, this idea of three different authors. And I see people who don't maybe don't know who to trust and maybe get a little bit shaken by the idea that everything isn't as clear cut as we thought why is that not a concern for us? And how do we approach uh, learning about this book or about other books in scripture when it may, maybe our first idea about it or our first thoughts that were presented to us aren't the case? What What is trustworthy in these? Yeah. Jesus is trustworthy, right? But Jesus never wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the kind of weird things about divine revelation. You would think, well, Jesus has all this stuff to teach us. Why didn't Jesus write a book? Instead, other people wrote books about what Jesus said. And they're not identical, right? The the four gospels are slightly different from one another. So I feel like even right there, we get a taste for kind of what's happening. And I think what we need to do is kind of zoom out a little bit from claims about authorship to thinking about what, what do we mean when someone's an author? So Take my book, for example, right? I wrote the book, but other people edited it. Other people changed sentences in it. Uh, Other people corrected spelling errors in it. Um, And that's a really important part of the book making process. And in the ancient world, it would be even more so the case. Um, You don't have Ernest Hemingway sitting down at his typewriter, you know, typing out the great American novel and then, you know, emailing it off to the presses, right? Instead, texts come to be in a pretty complicated way. So some of the texts in the Bible we think originated in liturgical circumstances. So 
Many of the Psalms, scholars believe, were sung at the temple before they were written down and recorded in sacred scripture. Uh, or, you know, it's very possible many books of the Bible began as oral tradition, right? As stories and principles that are taught and told and retaught and retold over a series, perhaps, of generations before they are then committed to writing. You see something similar in the book of Jeremiah, which of course is by Jeremiah, but if you read the book of Jeremiah, a lot of it is about Jeremiah, and you'll notice that he has secretaries. So it's clearly the secretaries that are helping him record his prophecies and write about his life and record the events in the book of Jeremiah. So we need to get away from this idea that authorship is a kind of solo enterprise, right? Authorship in the ancient world is really actually a kind of group exercise. And if you don't believe me, just read Romans chapter 16. I think it's verse 25, where it says, I, Tertius, wrote this letter, right? And you were just talking about St. Paul's authorship. Well, the, the letter to the Romans says it was written by somebody else, not by Paul, right? So what's going on there? Paul has a secretary. Paul's probably dictating. The secretary is, is literally writing down what Paul is saying, taking notes, you know, and then, and then drafting the letter in, in the form that actually gets sent out. And so this is, the, I think, the way to think about this, that what we're looking for is not authors, but authorities, right? The authority of the four gospels is Jesus, right? And the authority of the gospel writers themselves, right, is their apostolic authority, right? So even say, for example, the gospel of Mark is attached to the authority of the apostle Peter. And the, the authority of St. Paul's letters are attached to St. Paul and his teachings. These are the authentic teachings of St. Paul. Or think of the letters of St. John. Okay, so I think the same thing begins to apply to certain Old Testament books or groups of books. Think of the Psalms. Well, the Psalms we think of as the we as as being written by David, but many of the Psalms say they were written by somebody else. There's one Psalm that says it was written by Solomon, one that says it was written by Moses. Some that don't have a superscription, some that are written by the uh, the various Levites serving at the temple, and and yet we think of the entire book of Psalms as somehow under the authority of David, right? It carries the authority of David. In the same way, the book of Proverbs has multiple authors who are named, especially toward the end of the book, but it's under the authority of Solomon, or it's in the Solomonic tradition. And so, when we come to pseudonymous literature, right, which is literature that sort of seems to be written by one person, but in fact is not, we need to be, you know, thinking it the way the ancients were thinking about this, right? Ascribing a book to a famous person was a way of honoring that person and their teaching and their authority. It wasn't a way of undercutting their authority or sort of defrauding the audience. It was a way of saying, this is in this tradition. Now, with the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon doesn't claim to be written by anyone in particular, and the name of Solomon never appears in the book. We're talking today with Dr. Mark Yischek from the Augustan Institute just outside Denver, Colorado. He's the author of the new commentary volume on the wisdom of Solomon, part of the Baker Academic Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. He's also one of the series editors for the Old Testament section of that same commentary. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there's more to this conversation right after the break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Mark Gieschek. He is the um, professor of sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute just outside of Denver, uh, one of my favorite places, um, both Denver and the Augustine Institute, both. Uh, and of course, the Augustine Institute is such a fantastic organization because it's so multifaceted. Well, you're preparing people for ministry for the good of the church, specifically around the new evangelization. A lot of uh, biblical studies and scripture studies going on there. But you also have this outward um, public-facing component with the various Bible studies and forum.org and other things that are saying, hey, growing in your faith, studying the Bible is not just for the elite. It's not just for the pastor. It's not just for the catechist. It's for the whole church. And you, you carry out that mission so well, both by equipping excellent scholars and by inviting everyone into scholarship. So if you uh, want to get started with that, maybe go over to formed.org. Maybe your parish already provides that for you. If you've never logged in, go log in, do a Bible study, or consider uh, going and getting a master's. They've got just a, a plethora of things that help you in your faith to enrich the life of the church. Um, Dr. Gieschek is also one of the series editors for the Baker Academic Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture for the Old Testament, which is uh, just now beginning to come out with his volume, Wisdom of Solomon, which we're talking about today. Now, you look like you wanted to say something there about the Augustine Institute, so I'm going to step back and let you let you take that, and then we'll get back to the book. I just wanted to thank you for your shameless plug for us. Uh, we're very humbled by that. Um, we've got master's programs online in theology uh, and in now in education. So we're offering a, a Catholic education master's degree uh, and in pastoral theology. But the thing I wanted to mention here was uh, something that often gets overlooked that we do. So we have a whole series of short courses that are taught by our faculty that are available online. Um, and it's, it's its own kind of like self-contained platform. Uh, and in there, you can either buy a course as a kind of like one-off for maybe, I think it's about 40 or $50, or you can subscribe and have access to all 40 or so courses that are in there. I think it's about $24 a month. Um, and I've got a course in there on the Wisdom of Solomon. So it's about, um, I think it's six half-hour lectures on the Wisdom of Solomon. So if you don't want to read the book or you love the book and you want to go take the course, you can do that as well. Um, but the short courses are a great way to kind of, um, you know, dip your pinky toe into the deep end and see what it's like, you know, see how the water is before actually um, applying for a master's program. Where do we find these short courses? So I think if you just Google, you know, Augustine Institute short courses, they should pop up. Excellent. Let's come back to the book. We're talking about the wisdom of Solomon. And this is one of those books that I've not spent a lot of time with. I told you earlier, I, I tend to think of it as Proverbs 2.0. Like you're going to get the same kind of stuff, maybe with a little bit of a different flavor. It follows the same, you know, the same plot points, just with new actors, right? Um, as I was reading the commentary, though, and I'm looking through the, one of the early sections, you talk about the structure of the book. I see that it's that my assumption about this book was incorrect, that there are some areas that have some proverby kind of things, but there's also some historical elements that I was unaware of. So help me place this book. What What is this kind of hybrid Frankenstein-y 
book of the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the idea of uniting the Hebrew uh, mindset with the Greek, right? The book of wisdom really is about the quest. It's about the quest for wisdom. It's about the quest for God. It's about the quest for immortality. It's about the quest for righteousness. So it, it even begins, right? Love righteousness, you rulers of the earth. And the opening of the book, those first six chapters are about life and death. So it's about immortality, about the pursuit of wisdom. It's about sort of thinking your way toward God. And it's really addressed to the rulers of the day, the Hellenistic kings who had won their power at the point of the spear, right? They had, uh, you know, conquered the world under Alexander the Great, and then they fought all of these wars against one another and established these various kingdoms. So, you know, like the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. It's kind of a strange era, right? Where there's a real kind of cultural fusion going on, where Greek culture is kind of spreading around the world as a kind of universal language. And yet it's really only for the elites. And there are lots of other people who are kind of, uh, you know, kind of on the, on the uh, lower levels of, of society. Wisdom of Solomon is speaking into that cosmopolitan environment and seeking to, on the one hand, I think, convince non-Jews, right, Gentiles of the rationality of the Jewish faith, right? That this is not some sort of hocus pocus kind of superstitious, uh, strange religion, uh, like maybe the Egyptians believe in, <laughs> uh, but rather it's a very rational kind of religion. It's the same kind of argument that you find in Fourth Maccabees, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's written for, say, maybe young Jewish men who have encountered Greek religion and Greek philosophy and Greek ideas and maybe even the Greek gymnasium and are very um, attracted to what we would call secularization, right? And to kind of leave their faith behind and, and just sort of totally assimilate to the Greek culture. And the author of w The Wisdom of Solomon is in that environment seeking to draw those young men back into the very best traditions of their fathers, right? So that they might um, pursue wisdom just like Solomon did, that they might um, set out on this quest, right? That's a quest of righteousness and a quest of um, in intellect and, and also a quest of love, right? That they might love wisdom and by loving wisdom, come to love God. So that's really, you know, the heart of the book is in chapters six through nine, it's really a kind of um, first person description of what it's like to fall in love with wisdom and seek after her, uh, written in, in the voice of King Solomon. Although, like I said, it never really mentions his name at all. In fact, the book doesn't include any names, which is kind of this mysterious thing about the book. It uses a um, technique uh, called antonomasia, which is essentially where it omits names on purpose, and then it tells stories about people, and um, and then it's kind of fun for the reader if you know the stories. You're like, oh, that's Enoch, right? Oh, that's Solomon. Oh, that's Adam and Eve. Um, and you'll see this particularly in chapter 10, if you read it. Um, and then the last half of the book, so chapters 10 through 19, is usually referred to as the book of history. What's happening here is the author is sort of retelling the story of salvation from the vantage point of wisdom, thinking of wisdom almost like a character that God has inserted into the story. Um, and it's kind of the force that's guiding God's people through 
uh, through their history. And in particular, the book of history tells the story of the Exodus and the story of the 10 plagues. Um, and it's telling that story in a very unusual way, a way that we wouldn't expect, where it sort of casts the Egyptians as the uh, uh, as the wicked, and it casts the Israelites as the righteous, right? With Without any kind of nuance, right? It's like very clear, black and white, right? The bad guys and the good guys. Um, and then it explains how in every single instance in that period of the plagues, the Lord intervened in history in a particular way. And through that intervention, the Egyptians were cursed, right? The wicked were punished and the righteous were rewarded. Uh, and, and, um, and that it's God's wisdom that is guiding the plot of the Exodus and of salvation history as a whole toward the deliverance of his people. So in the very last chapter of the book, in chapter 19, we get a depiction of the crossing of the Red Sea and how God's people become almost like um, fish or turtles or something as they go through the Red Sea to the other side um, on this you know, magnificent journey of salvation away from the land of paganism and corruption and false religion, false worship, and toward life with God in the promised land. Mm-hmm. John Walton is a professor of scripture at Wheaton, and I first heard this phrase from him. It may not have originated from him, but he said, um, scripture was written for us, but not to us. Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And this he said as a means to help us do what you've just done. Uh, Get out of our own initial thoughts and look at who was the author actually writing this book to, what were their actual goals so that we can uh, maybe place ourselves appropriately in relationship to it. So you've, I think, laid out very well for us the case of who this book was written to, what the author was trying to do. How do we approach this book now, um, understanding for to, to whom it was written, uh, to gain something for ourselves spiritually today? Yeah. Well, you know, um, there, I mean, there are so many beautiful passages, but I just want to point maybe to one in chapter six. So this is in uh, chapter six, verse 17. The beginning of wisdom is the most sincere desire for instruction. And concern for instruction is love of her. And love of her is the keeping of her laws. And giving heed to her laws is assurance of immortality. And immortality brings one near to God. So the desire for wisdom leads to a kingdom. I feel like in some ways, this is kind of the message of the whole book in a nutshell, right? That um, if we really want to live a good life, right, a meaningful life, a satisfying life, a life full of of love and of purpose. Um, we need to think about what we're trying to do, right? We need to set our mind to the task. We need to learn, uh, but not just trivia and information and skills. We actually need to learn wisdom. We need to learn prudence. Um, we need to learn God's laws. And if we apply our minds to the pursuit of wisdom, uh, we can gain immortality. Right, we can find the laws of God. We can observe those laws. We can come to love wisdom and love God, and be transformed in that process. Now, of course, in a in a Christian mode, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel, right? That the Lord has provided a life saving message to us, and the deeper we know the gospel and love the gospel and love Jesus, right, 
our lives will be transformed and we will come to dwell with him in immortality and eternal life. So I think this is really the main message of, of the book of wisdom is that spiritual life is not just a kind of like hobby, right? Where I, you know, sit around and kind of learn some cool meditation practices and, you know, and then maybe I go on to do something else, right? It's more all encompassing than that. And, and I think for a lot of us, religion becomes almost a kind of exercise in sentimentality, right? Where it's a lot of it is about kind of emotions and symbols and, you know, smells and bells and this kind of thing. And I think that the book of wisdom and really, you know, the Catholic church in general are inviting us to engage our intellect in the process of faith and realize that God's given us this great tool, right? Our minds to understand him and draw near to him. And then if we apply our minds to the, 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 um, to our religion, right? To the laws of God, we can grow in faith and a knowledge of God and grow in love of him in a way that we never could have if we hadn't applied our intellect to the process. Mm -hmm. Whenever we approach scripture, scripture is living and active. And we can have read the passage a thousand times. And on the thousand and first time, the Holy Spirit enlightens something in our reading of that passage that revolutionizes something for us, that we uh, can take something new from Scripture uh, every time we read it. Obviously, you would not have come to write this book, this specific commentary, if you did not already have some connection and relationship with the book. But I also know that in the process of, of studying to write something of this caliber and this, this uh, level of thoroughness, you're going to have learned something new about yourself, about your faith, about the book. Is there a particular um, standout moment for you or some nugget or some spiritual benefit that you received in the writing of this book that you didn't have before, that you came and stumbled upon through the process? It's an interesting question. I, you know, it might be uh, taking two different parts of the book and seeing how they kind of rub up against each other that maybe was most transformative for me. So one of the most kind of alarming parts of the book is in chapter 17, when the author is describing the plague of darkness that comes upon the Egyptians. And he goes on at length to describe their terror uh, and their like um, how, how you know it's so dark and they can still hear things, but they can't see anything. And they're so afraid that they start to imagine all kinds of specters all around them. Um, and I felt like it was such a powerful image for, you know, our era that is so anxiety ridden, right? And so caught up in itself and so kind of afraid um, and kind of afraid of nothing to some extent. And that that really is a different kind of motivation than what you find in the Solomon character in chapters six through nine, right? Where he's motivated by love, right? He's falling in love with Lady Wisdom and seeking after her and and wooing her and he's head over heels in love. And it's like there's two different motivations, right? Love or fear, you know, which one is really going to drive us? And I feel like for me, that was a really powerful way of of thinking about the message of, of the Book of Wisdom, um, that we can be driven by fear and anxiety and and all of the problems out there in the dark, 
or we can be driven by this grand love story between God and his people. And in that way, I want to be more like Solomon, right? And less like the Egyptians. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm, of course, we're on a video chat and I get to see you and I get to see all of the the multiple copies of this this new commentary, Wisdom of Solomon, that you just now got to unpack and put on your shelves. I just got it today. Yeah. I also see there uh, another book that's published by both the Augustine Institute and by uh, Ignatius in a, in a co, um, co-publishing arrangement. Part of the What Every Catholic Should Know series, and if you're a Catholic, of course, you need to pick up every book in this series. But the new book here is uh, on suffering because you, uh, Mark Gieschek, like the easy topics. Yeah. Wisdom of Solomon, the book on what every Catholic should know on suffering. I want to talk to you at length about this in our extra segment, but maybe give us the 32nd version of this book uh, before we have to take our leave. Yeah. I mean, everybody suffers. It's the universal problem. But nobody understands it. We don't understand why we suffer or why God lets it happen. And this book is a kind of extended meditation on that, but it really provides a kind of um, set of practical tools for um, thinking through the problem of suffering and how we can deal with it uh, in our daily lives. So I hope mm-hmm. that it's really helpful for people who are you know, in the midst of suffering um, to use a little bit of theology to, to think about those things. If you want to hear more about that book, you can come over to our Patreon section over OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link and there to all of our show supporters. We're going to have a nice little conversation about the book. We've been talking today with Dr. Mark Gieschek, Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute just outside Denver, Colorado, about the new uh, volume, Wisdom of Solomon and the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture from Baker Academic Press. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Mark Gieschek, or you want to go back and catch something that maybe you missed or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There, you can also find the links to our Patreon segment that we just talked about. Also, you can click the guest list and scroll down until you find Dr. Mark Gieschek's name. And there you can find the previous episodes where he has joined us on air. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, complete with original language research so you can look into the Greek and the Hebrew, and biblical commentary sets, including the Catholic commentary on sacred Scripture from Baker Academic. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Wisdom of Solomon. We might as well spend a little bit of time actually engaging with the book. We're reading out of chapter 7. Therefore I prayed, and understanding was given me. I called upon God, and the Spirit of Wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepters and thrones, and I accounted wealth as nothing in comparison with her. Neither did I liken her to any priceless gem, because all gold is but a little sand in her sight, and silver will be accounted as clay before her. I loved her more than health and beauty, and I chose to have her rather than light, because her radiance never ceases. All good things came to me along with her, and in her hands uncounted wealth." 
I rejoiced in them all because wisdom leads them, but I did not know that she was their mother. I learned without guile, and I impart without grudging. I do not hide her wealth. For it is an unfailing treasure for mankind. Those who get it obtain friendship with God, commended for the gifts that come from instruction. May God grant that I speak with judgment and have thoughts worthy of what I have received, for he is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. For both we and our words are in his hand, as are all understanding and skill in crafts. That reading comes again from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 7. In his commentary on this passage in the Wisdom of Solomon, Dr. Gieschek says, Solomon compares wisdom to power, riches, gems, health, light, all good things, yet they all pale in comparison with her. Wisdom is the key that unlocks every other good. Jesus teaches a similar lesson out of the book of Matthew when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Solomon received all good things from wisdom, and wisdom herself was the source. She leads them and was their mother. Solomon's riches, power, and enjoyment of life all derived from wisdom. Our author could not be more emphatic regarding wisdom's outsized and singular role at unleashing all the good things of life. As Dr. Gieschek points out, this call to wisdom is consistent and continues from the Old Testament into the New. As Jesus himself reminds us and calls us to seek first the kingdom of God. Don't go looking after these other things that you think will bring you happiness. Don't go after other, these other things that you feel are your obligation and responsibility, but rather, first and foremost, make the, the focus of your mind to seek after the kingdom of God, to seek after righteousness, to seek after wisdom. And the other things will take care of themselves when our focus is in the right place. But how do we get wisdom? How do we grow in understanding? Well, in the, the reading we just read, it starts off saying, Therefore I prayed, and understanding was given me. I called upon God, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. So our author here knows and understands that it is through conversation with God, through growing to know who God is, Anything else of wisdom will come to us because God is the one who leads wisdom and wisdom is the one that helps us grow in friendship with God. And so through prayer, through study as well, recognizing that we don't have a full, complete grasp on the world and seeking to understand it more fully, reading scripture and praying with scripture and studying scripture with trusted guides. These are all ways that we can grow in wisdom and understanding. And as a kind of a treatise on that idea, our reading from church history today comes from a commentary on the Diatessaron by St. Ephraim. Lord, who can comprehend even one of your words? We lose more of it than we grasp, like those who drink from a living spring. For God's word offers different facets according to the capacity of the listener, and the Lord has portrayed his message in many colors, 
so that whoever gazes upon it can see in it what suits him. Within it, he has buried manifold treasures, so that each of us might grow rich in seeking them out. The Word of God is a tree of life that offers us blessed fruit from each of its branches. It is like that rock which was struck open in the wilderness, from which all were offered spiritual drink. As the Apostle says, they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. And so whenever anyone discovers some part of the treasure, he should not think that he has exhausted God's word. Instead, he should feel that this is all he was able to find of the wealth contained in it. Nor should he say that the word is weak and sterile, or look down on it simply because this portion was all he happened to find. But precisely because he could not capture it all, he should give thanks for its riches. Be glad, then, that you are overwhelmed, and do not be saddened because he has overcome you. A thirsty man is happy when he is drinking, and he is not depressed because he cannot exhaust the spring. So let this spring quench your thirst, and not your thirst the spring. For if you can satisfy your thirst without exhausting the spring, then, when you thirst again, you can drink from it once more. But if, when your thirst is sated, the spring is also dried up, then your victory would turn to your own harm. Be thankful, then, for what you have received, and do not be saddened at all that such an abundance still remains. What you have received and attained is your present share, while what is left will be your heritage. For what you could not take on at one time because of your weakness, you will be able to grasp at another if you only persevere. So do not foolishly try to drain in one draught what cannot be consumed all at once, and do not cease out of faint-heartedness from what you will be able to absorb as time goes on. That reading again comes from a commentary on the Diatessaron by St. Ephraim. And let's take two pieces of advice from St. Ephraim. The first is don't despise small beginnings. Each of us has to begin our journey of study of Scripture someplace. And so maybe today it is reading a whole book instead of just reading the passages that are in the lectionary. Maybe it's reading with a commentary for the first time. These are good beginnings as we seek out wisdom. So don't be ashamed of small beginnings, but don't be content with small steps either. If we are only doing the same things day after day and we are not growing in our knowledge and we're not growing in our pursuit of wisdom, then we're missing something. Let us go ever deeper as we search out the scriptures, as we seek to know God, as we seek to grow in wisdom. That's all the time we have for today's show. Today's show is brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.